Welcome to the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, where I believe a healthy world is based on transparent conversations. In today's episode, I sit down with Dr. Sportelli. Dr. Sportelli is board certified by the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology. He is also fellowship trained in child and adolescent psychiatry. In a nutshell, Dr. Sportelli seeks to dispel the myths and stigmas of mental illness and provides his patients with up-to-date, clinically relevant treatment options. Here's the deal. He is in the trenches working with patients. He also runs a residency program. He is throughout published in research and presenting and really a leader in his field. And you may have seen him before on The Doctors, and he's not naive to media. This guy has been all over the place. But what's most important is he is articulate, he is super fit, and he is really interested in making your life better. In this episode, we discuss a lot of things. We discuss how prescription drugs are not always the only answer. In addition, he talks about the biological mechanisms that exist within us and that are actually geared toward evolutionary survival, but might not be so appropriate in our modern world. Are we primed for stress or not? And how does this backfire? What is general adaptation syndrome and how can we get better at life? I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed learning things all about psychiatry, what is up and coming, and how to make our lives better. As always, if you like this episode, please you subscribe, leave a review. This is information that is all free of cost to make it available to everybody. And if you would like to join our membership, please head over to my website and you will see a tab for memberships. We would love to have you as part of the Forever Strong community, the movement we are creating to make the world a stronger place. Thank you to Ned for sponsoring this episode of the show. I love something called Mellow Magnesium. Ned makes a Mellow Magnesium. And basically, the stuff tastes great. It was designed to address your energy, your calmness. So basically, I take it in the evening. It has a blend of three different forms of chelated magnesium. It has GABA, L-theanine, which is great for relaxing. It even has a couple amino acids and over 70 trace minerals. Again, it improves my sleep, helps me chill out, maybe even helps strengthen my immunity. I will tell you what, it's a great, healthy way to end your evening. And full transparency, Ned shares all of its third-party lab testing, which is pretty phenomenal. If you are wondering, Ned's products also have over 5,000 five-star reviews. And they have generously offered 15% off Ned products with the code Dr. Lion. Go to helloned slash Dr. Lion or enter the code Dr. Lion at checkout. That's H-E-L-L-O-N-E-D.com slash Dr. Lion for 15% off. Thank you to Vivo Health for sponsoring this episode of the show. I have found my favorite workout shoe, and that is the Vivo Barefoot shoe. And by the way, Vivo Barefoot makes a ton of different kinds of footwear for your kids to 
regular gym shoes to hiking boots to casual wear. Why I love Vivo Barefoot. Let me just tell you, I do a lot of number one, plyometrics, number two, heavy lifts. And this shoe is so versatile that I feel that I can sense the ground, meaning my stability is good with these shoes and my strength ends up being good. And I'm not worried about, am I going to roll an ankle or is the heel of the shoe too high? Studies show that by wearing the Vivo Barefoot shoe, foot strength can increase by up to 60%. This is incredible. This is like regenerative footwear in a box. You can also try it for a hundred days risk-free. VivoBarefoot.com slash Dr. Lion and get a 15% discount. Use the code Dr. Lion 15. My listeners will get a 15% discount. Love these shoes. Your family will love these shoes. It is an amazing, amazing gift and a gift to yourself. So head on over to VivoBarefoot.com slash Dr. Lion. Dr. Dominic Sportelli, thank you so much for coming on the show. We're going to talk about all things psychiatry and beyond. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Um, just to have this platform, I'm so passionate about behavioral health and psych. And I think, I mean, medicine in general is pretty misunderstood, but I, I just feel like psychiatry and behavioral health is so misunderstood. And, uh, excited to be here, maybe clear up some things. I love that. Uh, we're going to talk, you know, we're going to talk science. We're going to talk psychiatry. We're going to talk about behavioral health, all the things. But before we do that, now here's the rub. You have had a ton of experience. I think you co-hosted the Doctors mm. TV show. You've done a ton of media and you have done a ton and still do a ton of clinical practice, which means that you've been in the trenches. Mm. Truthfully, psychiatry is not an easy field. And before we talk about psychiatry, I just have to know your backstory. Yeah. Why oh, psych? Oh my God. So yeah, thank you. And if anything, I think I really want my story to encourage people, if anything, you know. Um, so I was the guy that no one thought could make it to med school. And for all the young kids out there that want to be doctors, physicians, um, or whatever, whatever, I want to give you this story for that reason. So I grew up and a um, little self-disclosure here, which I'm totally cool about and uh, maybe helps people too. Incredibly anxious kid. Like when I tell you anxiety, overwhelming anxiety, literally the age of six, seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, to the point of OCD, right? And we can talk about how OCD and anxiety are correlated. <clears throat> But for just, just so you understand, before I left my house every day, I used to have to recite a certain amount of things to my parents before I even left the home. And then once I was at school, I had to call my parents five times a day. If I broke a pencil at school, I correlated it with some sort of someone I love getting hurt. I mean, these are very typical OCD presentations. And of course, I know that now clinically, mm -hmm. but as a child, I was scared to death. And so... In that regard, I suffered with a lot of psychopathology growing up um, regarding anxiety and, and then it sort of manifested into depression and I wasn't the greatest student, um, probably because of that. And long story short, I'm in biology class, high school. And 
it's a basic high school biology class and they're talking about like cell division and you know the base like meiosis and mitosis and all that stuff you remember all that right and i remember looking around the room and, and saying why isn't everyone here so ridiculously enamored by what they're hearing right now because i have this body and brain and my heart is beating about 80 times per minute without me telling it to I'm breathing, I'm sending oxygen to all my cells. Just to have the conversation or the thought that I'm having right now is requiring millions upon millions of neurotransmitters and, and uh, you know, just a cascade of orchestration just to be alive. Why isn't everyone so enthralled with this, right? And that's when I said, I would love to learn how to be a doctor and figure this out and understand the human body, right? It's like, you know, I, I was that guy, like I just needed to know how it worked. Maybe that was part of my anxiety, I don't know, right? Like looking back now as a trained behavioral health specialist, I can sort of like deconstruct it and say, hey, anxiety is all about control. Maybe I wanted control and I wanted to learn about the human body. So long story short, I, I really wanted to be a physician and I started reading books and- um, Very young. Very, very young, you wanted to be very a physician. Very young, yeah. But here's the kicker, I didn't have good grades. I wasn't a great student. I wasn't that, I wasn't that student, you know, the one that's highlighting everything and getting straight A's and, you know, so I, I was embarrassed to tell anybody that I even wanted to go to med school because I knew what would happen is I'd get laughed at and, you know, um, did you have any siblings? I had, I have older siblings, um, about 10, 11 years older than me, um, who actually struggled with addiction that I experienced growing up. And we could, we could talk about that too, but, um, so here I go into college, right? Well, first of all, I need to back up because my high school guidance counselor actually said, you know, Dom, I don't really think you're college material. So I was like, okay, there's my first shoot down, right? And what I kept saying to myself was, and this is what I want others to hear, is that how does this person know me? How do they, how do they know? How do they know? my capabilities. How do they know? I mean, yeah, sure. They see test grades and things like that, of course. And that's important. And I'm an associate program director. Now I'm doing interviews for people that want to come into the program. Right. So this is incredible. So the tides have kind of flipped. Um, but I was the guy saying, how could someone else sort of tell me what I'm capable of and what I'm not and what my passions are? So I went to college and when I went to college, you know, I, I tried, but again, not a great student. I never really learned how to learn, if that makes any sense. Of course, of course. So my undergraduate career wasn't the greatest. Um, you Where'd know, you go? I went to Montclair State University. So I went to a state college again, didn't have great grades in high school, went to a state college. Um, Montclair State was great. It was a great, great college. Um, had your depression, anxiety cleared up? Struggled with it, struggled oh. with it all pretty much my whole young adulthood. And, um, but loved medicine, loved science, loved biology class, you know? And so I struggled, I got about a 3.2 GPA, not ashamed to say it, but you're not getting into med school with that, not happening, right? So high school guidance counselor, Dom, you're not college material. Um, college counselor, pre-med counselor, you're not getting to med school, buddy. Sorry, Gosh, think about okay. something else, right? So, so here we go, um, shoot down again. I said, you know what, I'm, I'm applying, I'm doing this, this is what I wanna do. I filled out over 100 applications to medical schools at that time. And at that time that was a lot, right now? Oh yeah, oh, it was hard. I mean, you know, the stats back then were, you know, 6,000 applicants for 100 spots, you know? So 
100 applications. And um, I'm going back to snail mail days, right? I'm going to age myself. <laughs> we won't tell. You look great. And, look great. and literally 100. No, sorry. I'm not going. You're not getting in. And every, they all said no. every single one. And I got every letter. So now I'm just getting reinforced. Wow. I mean, holy cow. Maybe, maybe I need to rethink this. And then I said, no, 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 no. I, I love this. This is my passion. This is what I need to do. So then I really said, what do I need to do here? What do I have to do? You got serious. I got serious. I got even more serious. And I did a master's degree at Montclair State University in biology. And, um, and I did very well. You know, I, my, my GPA was much better, like a 3.8 or a 3.9 or something like that. So here I go again, time to apply for medical schools again. And rejection, rejection, rejection. Wait list. Ooh, this is good. Yeah, that's a, that's wait a big list, deal. Wait list, wait list. Died on the wait list. All right. So now I have a master's degree with a really good GPA. I still want to be a physician. I'm working as a fitness trainer, by the way, just okay. to get me through all this all at right. the time. So I'm working as a fitness trainer. So um, I wasn't going to give up. And I had just about every single person in my life saying, you know, you need to rethink this. And um, I started to think outside the box. I'm like, okay, I did my undergrad. I did my GP, a good GPA in, in grad school. I'm still getting those. What do I have to do? So I spoke to a friend of mine that was in medical school at the time. And I said, listen, what's the hardest class you're taking right now? Just tell me what that class is. And he said, oh, it's no doubt it's biochemistry. It's medical school level biochemistry. It kills everybody. It's brutal. I said, okay. So I enrolled non-matric in a biochemistry course, graduate level, medical level. And I aced it because I just needed to do that. Um, I already had a master's at the time. So I just paid for this and just did it, not going toward a degree or anything. And I said, all right, I'm showing them that I could do this. So stop telling me no. So that's one way to do it. So I get in an interview and I go to that interview and it was actually funny. I'll never forget this interview. And I'm sitting across from the interviewer and he takes my file literally and he, uh, he throws it on the table and he sits back and he says, Dominic. So this is like the third time you're applying to our program. Um, I see that you were waitlisted in the past. Um, you got an interview and he just looked directly in my eyes and he said, what's going to happen when we give you a rejection letter this time? And, you know, kind of the, the blood drained from my head. And I was like, oh. but I, I thought about it. And I said, I said, you know what? I'm going to find another way to prove myself and I'll reapply next year. I love that. And he said, okay, shook my hand, left the interview and I got an acceptance letter. Oh, what an amazing story. Right? Yeah. So, but what were you thinking? What was I thinking? Yeah. Like, I mean, do you, well, you've applied. That was your third yeah. time applying to medical oh, yeah. school. Yeah. It takes a very strong person to be able to manage one rejection. I can accept you should be able to get back up. But two rejections and then willing to go in, into it for a third time, that's a lot. Yeah. What I was thinking was, is I'm going to do this if it kills me. I'm going to do because because I want to be a doctor. I want to be a physician. I want to help people. And I feel like I'd be good at it. I just felt it in my bones. I just love it. I feel like I'd be good at it. It was the right thing to do. So, and then again, I just had that feeling of everyone else is telling me no, but do they really know me? Do they really know what I'm capable of? And this is the best part. The best part is I get into med school and I am so appreciative of this, that I did so good in med school. And 
And it wasn't like an I told you so. I'm not an I told you so kind of guy, but maybe an I told you so for me. Mm. Because I was like, I'm tutoring kids that went to Ivy's that probably got in on their first shot, aced their undergrad, aced their MCATs, and I'm helping them now. Because I had to learn how to learn. I had to learn how to struggle through that. And I think that gave me this resilience and appreciation to be at a, a level that I was just so in love with what I was doing. So needless to say, I, I did really, really well in medical school. And Wait, what, so for those uh, people mm. listening, medical school is not easy. Yeah. Was, what was your trick for learning? Because you had never been a good student, yeah. been very challenging. You did great at biochemistry, which is unusual right. for anybody. How did you turn it around in terms from yeah, a learning perspective? It's such a good question. And, and this is what I think happens to a lot of kids that have difficulty with learning is people don't understand that you actually have to learn how to learn. And I, I said that a few times here. You know, I used to be under this weird impression because I had friends that could do this where they read a chapter and they take a test and they're fine. And I was never that guy. Mm -hmm. You can just read a chapter and take a test, right? So I had to teach myself how to learn. So my way was getting a dry erase board, reading a chapter out of a physiology book, and writing down on that dry erase board all the points that I thought were important that could be tested on, and then erase that dry erase board and do it again, and do it again, and do it again, and do it again, until I knew it. Now, here's another very, very, very important part of this, is that something else that I realized was that when you go sit in a lecture in medical school, that lecturer is teaching you the topic the way that he thinks it should be taught, right? Mm -hmm. But not everybody fits into that mold to understand the way that they're teaching. So what I would do is I literally had four, I can tell you which ones they were. I, I had four physiology textbooks, you know, and what I would do is read the same chapter on the topic in each one. And I would go, oh my goodness, that author explained that horribly. And that doesn't make any sense. And then I would open another one and I'd be like, that author did a really good job. Now I get it a little bit better. And then I would read another chapter and be like, ah, oh, why didn't they just explain it this way from the beginning? So what I realized is, is that using different authors styles of learning, you know, just to have an open mind to that. And then that changed everything for me, everything. So when there was a topic to study, I would read maybe three or four different chapters and three or four different books and see which one ever, which one fit me. Right? How did you, how did you then pick psychiatry? Yeah, so psychiatry. I didn't want to be a psychiatrist. I did not want to be a psychiatrist. So here I am. I made it to medical school, right? So I'm going to be a medical doctor, right? And uh, I want to deliver babies and I want to do surgery and I want to do all this idealistic stuff that people do when they go to med school and they want to be a doctor, right? So um, all of my friends were like, Dom, seriously, you're going to be a psychiatrist. You just don't know it yet. Really? <laughs> they totally did because- well because That's I was amazing. intrigued by the human mind mm. and I was always paying attention to behavior and I was always paying attention to motivation and all these things. And, and plus, don't forget all the stuff that I went through as a kid, right? I wanted to understand that, all the anxiety and, and depression. And how did and that get resolved, by the way? Was, was there a resolution to that? Well, I think, I think, I think a lot of the OCD, um, I, and I don't wanna say I grew out of it, but um, I sort of matured and became a little bit more self-confident and through a lot of pain and overcoming it. And, and I certainly 
think that people need a lot of help with that now as a psychiatrist, like psychotherapy and um, exposure and response prevention for ECT and even medications. So there, there are ways. It's not something that typically kids just grow out of. They no. probably do early intervention. No. I mean, looking back now, I say, wow, I could have really used some help. I see. <laughs> so know? that's good so for the- I think I'm a lucky one. I'm one of the lucky ones that sort of made it through. Um, I'm far from perfect now. Um, not ashamed to say it. You know, I take an SSRI every day. So, um, and that's helped me quite a bit too. And, and I want to talk about that too, because there's no such thing as a magic pill in psychiatry, right? It's yeah. not like, it's not like high blood pressure in, in medicine. It's very different. So, so psychiatry, here we go. So I want to be this idealistic doc. I want to do everything. Um, my friends are telling me I'm going to be a psychiatrist. I'm like, no way, not in a million years. I went to med school, psychiatry. It's not even real medicine. I said that I did. I did. I said it. <laughs> Busted, yeah. I said it. Um, so I enrolled and I got accepted into a family medicine program. And, and you enrolled in psychiatry too? Or yeah, you applied? family med. You just went straight family Psych. med? But when you were I doing- I mean, yeah, your... yeah, med, family med. Okay, yeah. but when you were doing your rotations, mm -hmm. what did you like? I liked everything. I liked everything. I did. I loved everything. And I was like, well, I think that's, that's what I need to do. I need to be a family medicine doc. And this is the realization. And you know what's crazy is that Looking back on this entire journey, I don't want to sound like some woo-woo Eastern philosophy thing. No, but you can. We'll take it. Man, every single thing happened for a reason. You know, every single thing happened for a reason. I wouldn't have done as good as I did in med school if I got handed if it was handed to me. Um, I wouldn't have chose psychiatry if I didn't experience family medicine. Right? You know, everything happened for a reason. So, so I'm in family medicine. And I'm delivering babies, you know, um, like literally, literally delivering babies, like 40 babies a month, scrubbing in on surgeries, um, you know, ICU call overnight, you know, pressers and keeping people alive on the vent. And, and it was amazing. I mean, I learned so much. But I'm in the clinic, right? We're doing our clinic days and people are coming in and they have high blood pressure and they have diabetes and they have common colds and they have little things here and there. And this is great. And I'm treating it. It's awesome. And then a patient comes in and they say, Hey doc, you know, I, I know I'm here for, for, you know, my blood pressure, but I'm so down. I'm so depressed or I'm so anxious. And then it's just like these antenna would just go up and I would want to listen and I would want to help them. And no one else was listening to them. And there's a shortage of psychiatrists, as you know, they couldn't get help. They couldn't afford help. So now I'm listening to them. And, and more than anything, I understood it because I went through it. Right. So, okay, cool. Get good, good. I'm good at that little cadre of patients, right? So whatever, whatever, still doing family medicine, family medicine. And then someone comes in and they say, you know, doc, I, I'm starting to hear voices. I'm starting to, you know, experience. And then again, my antenna goes up and I'm perking and I'm going, I, I need to help this person. I need to learn more about why this is happening. And that's when I said, I need to do psychiatry. That's, that's the path. Do you think that part of it is, is because the physical aspect is, and I say this gently, more easily mastered. Mm. Someone has high blood pressure. It's 120 over 80. Okay. It's, it's 140 mm -hmm. over 90. We're going to give you meds. But the human mind is so it's so difficult to master. Do you think it was a challenge or that it was you were interested in the pathology of the brain or was it something else? I think that 
psychiatry in and of itself, two physicians, two medically trained physicians, right? So these are people that are used to physics and chemistry and labs and x-rays and getting an answer. In psychiatry, there are very little answers. Spoiler alert, right? Very little answers. And I think that's unbelievably daunting to the mind of the individual that goes to medical school because it's not an appendicitis that you can cut out. It's not a hyperkalemia that you can treat, all right? It's not high blood pressure that you can give a anti-hypertensive for. It's so much deeper than that. And it's, it's emotionally intensive and it's intellectually intensive. And I'm not saying, you know, physicians in general, brilliant, right? But I think it's intimidating and daunting to a lot of people not to mention, let's add the stigma to it. Let's add the stigma of mental illness. Like we don't understand it. So, you know, oh, depression, just cheer up. Oh, you're anxious. Seriously, stop worrying. You're hearing voices. You're crazy. Let's just lock you up somewhere. Right. So um, I think it was very daunting for people. And I think that's, that's generally why it wasn't a field at that time that a lot of people were going into. But for me personally, I got it and I wanted to help these people. And even more so, that's what made me say, I need to do this. Because I would talk to my colleagues and I'd say, you know, I'm really interested in psychiatry. They go, are you crazy? Are you, are you crazy? Like, why, why are you going into that field? Like, yeah. what are you going to do? So, and I was like, well, I don't feel that way, which is even more of a reason to go to do it. So another thing I'll never forget is knocking on the door of my family medicine program director and uh, sitting down across from him, who's, you know, this great family physician, you know, and saying, Hey doc, um, thank you for having me in your program. Um, I'm going to finish this year successfully. Um, but I'm going to apply to psychiatry residency. And he looked at this, this stare, oh, this like, oh like 10 second stare, you know? And I was like, <laughs> and you know what he said to me? <laughs> it was great. He goes, Dominic, I don't know why anyone would want to go be a psychiatrist, but you need to do it. It's your passion. Go for it. And I support you. So I finished that year successfully. And then um, I was thankfully uh, accepted to Robert Wood Johnson's psychiatry program, general psychiatry. And then I finished that. And then I did fellowship in child and adolescent psychiatry. So here I am. So that's my story. A little bit long-winded and sorry, but- but Love it. I just, if anything, if, if it helps anybody, because, you know- Well, I think it helps a lot of people because there's a huge stigma. Mm. I did- I. I don't know if I, I mean, I told you, I don't know if the listener knows, but yeah. I trained in psychiatry for two years at the University of Louisville. And then I switched to family medicine. So you and I did opposite right. type right. tracks, which is, which is hilarious, which means you and I both did a much longer residency <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, than we needed to. But the training that I received in mental health was, it's extraordinary. Yeah. And psychiatry, like you pointed out, is very misunderstood. It has a huge stigma. What do you feel some of the major misconceptions are of the, the science, the practice of psychiatry? I mean, let's face it, you are not the average psychiatrist. You could look at, I will say, you could look at a room of surgeons and you know what? These guys are surgeons. Oh, the ortho crew. Yeah, yeah. But I would say that you are not the the typical psychiatrist, which also makes you a very good person to speak up about kind of the box yeah. that exists in psychiatry. Yeah. Right. So 
so here's here's one of the big problems with psychiatry now. Um, there are a few. Um, number one, and I think, listen, you know that old cliche is you can't make change unless you identify the problem, right? And I think that's why it's important to say these things in a forum like yours. Um, so number one, we've already talked about that each individual is completely unique. And, you know, we'll talk about the biopsychosocial approach and how important that is to assessing each individual. But remember, you have medical students who are very medical minded, who still like to fix things. Um, and they approach psychiatry in that way. And I'm telling everyone this out there that, you know, I've been a psychiatrist for over a decade now, and I'm an associate program director at a, at a teaching program. And I've worked in just about every level of psychiatry that you could imagine from inpatient to outpatient to addiction to, you know, uh, emergency room psychiatry is that there truly is no magic pill. There is no medication that will cure any psychiatric illness. We have medications that help. And, you know, I, I have a nice analogy for that, but, but a lot of psychiatrists are still very reductionist and medically minded. Explain, explain what that means. It means that if someone comes into your office and they say they're depressed and you say, okay, you took this questionnaire, you're checking everything for a major depressive episode. Here's some Prozac. Come back in two weeks and let's see how you feel. And let's see how you do on that questionnaire. That is not going right. to Right. That is not going to work. Um, someone that's psychotic, hearing voices, delusional, paranoid. We have antipsychotics that are very strong medicines. All right. This person's hearing voices. Um, let's put them in a box of schizophrenia and let's treat them with a very strong antipsychotic and let's just follow them up day to day and see if that medicine stops the voices. Well, sure. We know that it does reduce those positive symptoms of psychosis, mm -hmm. but if you're not helping this person in just about every other sphere in their life, then you are going to crash and burn. Do you feel that that's because the brain is an organ and it's, you know, saying someone has, you know, pneumonia, you treat mm -hmm. their lungs. Would, would you say it's because of that or that the illness is global in its influence? Yeah, I think so. You're right. I think, I think most physicians think exactly what you just said you have high blood pressure, take this pill. You have a bacterial pneumonia, take this antibiotic. You're hearing voices, take this antipsychotic. Where in, and I think this might be a good segue to talk about like the biopsychosocial model is that, you know, it's very important. And um, a gentleman by the name of George Engel came up with this model to assist behavioral health, which is unbelievably important. This is my, I'm gonna give you two quick analogies, ready? So, the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Psychiatry, is, is the psychiatry bible for pathology and diagnosis. Now, it's very, very, very important as physicians to, to classify behavioral health and, and illness. We have to have a name for the syndromes that we see. Totally otherwise, so otherwise, how can we communicate? Exactly. If I say this person is diagnosed with major depressive disorder, recurrent severe with psychosis, mm -hmm. as a clinician, you need to know what I'm talking about. Absolutely. So we need those boxes, right? But to me, this is what I think. I think the DSM-4 is like the primary color wheel, right? We're the primary colors. There's only, there's not many primary colors. Reality is the Benjamin Moore color wheel. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of shades and mutations. And, and I think somebody might be a little bit more to the red spectrum or the gray spectrum or the green spectrum, but reality is that. 
right? It's very hard to put things in very contained boxes. So the DSM is important, but it certainly does miss a lot, right? So, so that being said, the biopsychosocial model in psychiatry is so important. So every single person that comes to you, I don't care what that pathology is. If you're not looking first and foremost at their biology, now we know that behavioral health is genetic. We know this. There are you know, so many studies that show that affective disorders, bipolar disorders, schizophrenia, very, very inherent in generic, genetic, I'm sorry. But we cannot, and then we say to ourselves, okay, if I take a, a dopamine blocker, I'm going to reduce the amount of delusions or hallucinations in this individual. Same thing with an antidepressant. If I increase serotonin and, and increase BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, I'm going to help this person. But if we're not looking at their social circumstances, what if you're in a terrible marriage? What if you have trauma from a childhood? What if you're being bullied? What if your perception of the world is so skewed because of all of your experiences, which is, again, I'd love to talk about I that too. Definitely. How is a pill going to help, right? So you have to address those aspects of that individual's life, or you're only doing a very small piece of the puzzle, right, to help them. If you're not, if you're not looking at their social circumstances, right, their socioeconomic status, their income, their education, um, their support systems, their peer groups, who are they with, who are they surrounding themselves with, if you're not addressing that then you're not doing anything for these people. You know, my, I have another analogy for you. I'm sorry. I think in analogies, you know, it's kind of I think the way it's that very, I think, it's right? very actually helpful for the audience yeah. as well as, you know, um, yeah. of course. So, so when it comes to psychotropic medication, my analogy is this, let's just pretend that my job is to teach you how to ride a bicycle, the best possible way that you can ride a bicycle. That's my job. And I say, okay, um, I need to make sure, but I notice the air in those tires is flat. I think, okay, I could still teach you how to ride this bike potentially, but it's gonna be harder. The bumps are gonna feel a little rougher. It's gonna be harder to go up those hills. You might crash, right? You might affect the rest of the bicycle, right? There's gonna be more stress on the other parts of the bicycle. So a medication in psychiatry to me is like making sure that the tires in the bicycle have the right air pressure, okay? Now that's a very small piece of learning how to ride a bicycle. If I give you the appropriate medicine, it'll be easier to ride the bike. It'll be easier to go up the hills. The bumps won't feel as harsh, right? It might be a smoother ride, but did I teach you how to ride the bike by putting air in the tires? No, I did not teach you how to ride the bike by putting air in the tires. I made it easier for you. So that's how I approach psychopharmacology and the medicines that we have is I can make it a little easier for you with some of the, some of the psychopharmacology. But you also need to learn how to ride the bike. You need to learn how to live your life. And if you're not approaching all these other av avenues, these other aspects of your life, the social, the interactive, the psychological, your coping strategies, your perspective on the world, then I'm doing you a disservice by just putting air in the tires and giving you the bike and expecting you to learn how to ride. Thank you to Inside Tracker for sponsoring this episode of the show. You guys know how I feel like blood work. And if you haven't gotten yours, get on the horse because you have to know what's going on inside your body so that you can make the appropriate changes to optimize your health and wellness. And my friends, if you're not willing to do it for you, you should be willing to do it for those that you love. I absolutely love Inside Tracker. They take a whole bunch of biomarkers. Most importantly, it's very easy to get done. You can go to the insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lion. They have a store. 
you'll get 20% off. You'll be able to, if you are in the States where they have mobile phlebotomy, click on it, schedule your blood work, no excuses. And not only that, Inside Tracker also offers Inside Tracker Pro, which enables coaches and health professionals to provide premium and personalized services by leveraging Inside Tracker's analysis and recommendations with their clients. It is an absolute win-win. That's insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lion. Thank you to Paleo Valley for sponsoring this episode of the show. Paleo Valley makes the best tasting beef sticks on the planet. And here's how I know. Because my children, who are very finicky eaters, ask for Paleo Valley beef sticks. By the way, not only are they 100% grass-fed and grass-finished, they are also a great source of protein and they are fermented. They taste amazing. They have naturally occurring probiotics, which again, could potentially be great for gut health. Most importantly, they taste amazing. Absolutely love this grab on-the-go snack. In fact, I pack them with me everywhere I go. If you see me out, I might just be eating a Paleo Valley beef stick. They have omega-3 fatty acids, vitamins and minerals, CLA, and of course, bioavailable protein. Doesn't matter what kind of nutrition plan you are on, these fit in great. You can grab yours. Head on over to paleovalley.com slash Dr. Lion. That's paleovalley.com slash Dr. Lion for a 15% off discount. You know, there was, when we were chatting about some of the things that you were, you know, that you and I were going to talk about, I have a, a list of mm. great questions here. Um, one of the things that, you know, I have personal questions as it relates to the environment that we live in now, mm-hmm. the way in which we've been taught about stress. I, I feel as if the way in which we have been told and taught about our environment has actually made it harder to navigate. And I'm so interested in your perspective on stress. How have we evolved to handle it? Is it really this fight or flight that we keep hearing about? Is that accurate? Are there other ways that we can think about stress, that we can navigate it? Yeah. Yeah. There's such good questions and and so important. And that's why I love being here. Thank you for asking that question. Of course. So let's go back to basics here and realize how complicated and simple at the same time that we are, right? And how it affects psychology and psychiatry and behavioral health and mental health. Evolutionarily, we are adaptive beings. We have to change based on our environment in order to survive. Now the human mind and the human body is somewhat primitive in that respect because when it comes to survival, here's the truth. As amazing as we are as beings, physiologic beings, our survival mechanisms are really short-term. They are. They're they're, they're short-term. And this is what I mean by this when it comes to stress. So thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, or however far back you want to go, we developed this general adaptation principle um, that was brought forth by an individual, um, Hans Selye. So... Let's just go back when we were cave women and cavemen. Um, if we felt a threat, what happened? Our bodies experienced a fight or flight phenomenon. 
Okay. So that fight or flight phenomenon means physiologic things now happen in the body based on what we're thinking. Okay. So back then, if you were afraid that a tribe was going to throw a spear your way and you thought that, then your body is going to change. And the way that your body changes is this huge survival sort of cascade. All right. And it starts with the, we know all this fun stuff from medical school, the thalamus and the hypothalamus and corticotropin releasing hormone and um, telling our adrenal glands to produce norepinephrine. And norepinephrine changes blood flow. It changes blood flow to the muscles and removes it from our digestive system. It slows down digestion and emptying from the stomach and speeds up digestion in the colon and shifts blood vessels in the brain and where blood is going to flow. So based on that thought, that there's a fear that something is going to happen, our body just changed, okay? Now, that's meant to be short-term. What do you mean by short-term? Short-term, immediately. Get me out of this situation. Get me out of this situation now, okay? I need to, to run. I need to fight. And in order to do those things, my body has just changed. Cortisol. You're, you're flooded with cortisol at that time. You know, your adrenal glands flood cortisol. And what do we know about cortisol? Cortisol tells the liver to make more sugar, right? Cortisol reduces the immune response, reduces IL-6 and IL-1 and TNF and, you know, all of these uh, cytokines and immune mediators. So, but in the short term, that's great. The problem is, is what if you're under stress chronically, right? So even though we've been adapted to get out of these circumstances quickly, if necessary, our body does not know right now in the year 2024, whether we're being chased by a tiger, whether there's a tribe throwing a spear at us, um, or we have a work deadline, or our cell phones are pinging every three minutes, right? Your body doesn't know that. All that it knows, it needs to respond to a threat, a perceived threat. What adapts faster, mind or body? What do you think adapts faster? That's, that's easy, your body. And that's part of the problem is that your body is responding subconsciously without thought at that point um, to the perceived threat, a subconscious threat. And that's, that's an amazing question because it's responding subconsciously over and over and over for the exact reason is you don't have time to think in those situations. And evolutionarily, your body knows that. I can't sit here and calculate, well, maybe I should do this. Maybe I should do that. As a matter of fact, blood goes away from your prefrontal cortex and it just goes to the basic part of your brain, you know, your midbrain and your hippocampus and your amygdala and all these, these parts of your brain that are like, look, you need to do this now or else. So it becomes subconscious. Now, that's that autonomic nervous system response, right? That we all know about the sympathetic nervous system, the parasympathetic nervous system. So Which it seems as if it's black and white, but is it? It's not. It's not, is it's it? It's not. I mean, that sounds so great, right? And I think anybody watching your program right now that's taking a neuroscience course or maybe neuroscientists out there still really follow that paradigm of sympathetic, you know, um, is going to do all those things, epinephrine, norepinephrine, heart rate increase, breathing increase, shifting blood flow to various areas of the body, um, cortisol, and, and a million other things that take place. And then the sympathetic nervous system, you know, basically our vagal system that allows us to feel comfortable and relaxed and digest and uh, slows down our heart rate and makes us feel less guarded. You know, that's a very simple paradigm. And that's sort of what we've 
followed for quite a long time, but it's so much more complicated than that. And a few theories have been put forth, right, uh, based on that, like Stephen Porges, for example, in, uh, in the 1990s put forth what was called the polyvagal theory. And, you know, it's not without controversy. And, you know, we can even get into that a little bit. But what Stephen Porges is saying is that, you know, it's more complicated in the sense that not only do we have fight or flight, but we have vagal branches that can also immobilize us, almost like old reptilian simple brains used to just immobilize and freeze. And why that's important, and ready to go down the rabbit hole, because here we go. Uh, why that's appreciate in, that. Why that's important is this. Understand something, that when we experience chronic stress or chronic trauma, and we have that autonomic nervous system that's just flooding our bodies with cortisol and epinephrine and norepinephrine, eventually you reach a state of exhaustion and your body knows that you know i mean we know as medical physicians if you have too much cortisol what happens you're breaking down body tissues you're in a catabolic state we love to work out i, yeah. I love to train i don't want to be in a catabolic right. state i want to be in an anabolic state so so now um some of these theories like polyvagal theory are saying you know you're going to go into a, a position of shutting down at this point. Your, your vagal system knows this and it's going to shut you down. And what I mean by shutting down is immobilization. Physical, this, mental. Yeah. So, and here, here and we also, go. And also we have to talk about this idea of chronic stress is that it's the perception of stress. Yeah. But if we, yeah. what if we change the perception of stress would we still have the same physiological responses? What can we do? I love it. What do you tell your pay, I mean, you know, your patients, what do you tell your friends? What do you, what are you going to tell the listener? What can we do? I love it. You're brilliant. You're brilliant. And you're, and you're, you're leading me down the proper roads here. So again, autonomic nervous system, fight or flight. If it continues, you go into a state of exhaustion and you'll probably shut down and, and, you know, shutting down is a very vague term. What does that even mean? So understand something and the viewers out there that I, I want you to understand is that this is a physiologic process. It's a physiologic and neurologic process. When you are in a fight or flight state, things change. For example, your visual acuity changes. You become able to see better for very short time periods. Do you know that all of your senses change? So um, we know that the tympanic muscles, when you are in a fight or flight state, are better at picking up frequencies of scary things, um, not necessarily speaking tones, right? Your facial muscles of facial expression change when you're in a fight or flight circumstance. This is all neurologic and it's, it's, this is all in the data. So a point that I have is that when you're in a constant state of fight or flight, you are physiologically changing and your body is adapting to be prepared for a fight constantly. Now, how does that affect us day to day and person to person, right? It affects our thought process. And this is getting to your question, okay? We also have something in our central nervous system called the reticular activating system, okay? And the RAS. And get this. And, you know, when I first learned this stuff, I was like, what? This is wild. But we have so many things to process every single moment of every single day. Our bodies and minds and our senses, our five senses are always scanning the environment for safety and comfort. 
A reticular activating system, among other things, is responsible for sleep-wake cycles. It's responsible for um, conscious awareness. It takes us through our REM cycles, right? But something that it also does that we've known in neuroscience is that it's a filter. And the reason that it's a filter is because we have so much input coming in all of the time. And the RAS is in the brainstem. It's in the anterior brainstem. It's a very small piece of our, our brain. In the and brainstem. when is it fully developed? That's a good question. Do we, um, know? we usually think that early 20s, you know, about that time, um, which again, when we talk about kids, you know, it's a little different. But so now your RAS is a filter. Now think about a bouncer at a door, only letting in certain people, mm -hmm. only letting in certain clients. So your RAS is paying attention to some very specific cues. And guess what those cues are? Remember, this is about survival. Guess what those cues are? Emotional responses to circumstances. So what- Wait, say that again. That's so interesting. Say emotional responses to circumstances, meaning if I see something that troubles me emotionally, my RAS is going to go ding, pay attention to that. Okay. So then what happens is, and that could be anything. That's the amazing thing about modern society is that we get worked up over so many things now. This is why we are biased and it's called a confirmation bias is the RAS is now choosing what we're going to pay attention to and what we're not going to pay attention to. How fast is that Sub becoming coded? Subconsciously, right? Now that depends. How significant was that emotional response? And that's why we, you know, we can also talk about PTSD and things of that nature when people really experience a trauma. But the point is with the RES, reticular activating system, this is all part of the autonomic system, is now you have a filter that's letting in things and not letting in things. And there's a confirmation bias in that. So let's just say, I'm going to be super basic here. Wonderful. Um, let's just say that I feel that going outside is dangerous. Let's just say that. Because one day I went outside and I saw an icicle fall and just about missed me. I'm making this up. The RAS, and I became nervous and scared and emotional. My amygdala fired and all, you know, these, these, these parts of my, you know, um, central nervous system got fight or flight. So now my RAS goes, it's dangerous outside. Pay attention. So what's going to happen is day to day without me even knowing this, I'm going to see millions of sensory inputs here, feel, see, but my RAS is always going to confirm the danger that I think is present. So the RAS is going to say, oh, see that icicle hanging there? That's dangerous. Oh, when you watch the news today, see someone got hurt today. It's going to confirm those, those feelings and thoughts. So now you're looking at the world through a different perspective than someone else because your reticular activating system is only filtering the things that it feels are important. Now it's doing this on a primitive scale because it's trying to keep you alive. We need this, right? We need this and it makes sense, doesn't it? Of course. However, the problem is again, if we experience a tough childhood, maybe we were bullied and not, you know, I mean, this is, this is such big topic stuff, but Maybe I start to perceive the world in a negative way. Now, I'm not even aware of these thoughts anymore. I just feel it. And now I look at the world as a dangerous place because my RAS is filtering and corroborating all of those thoughts 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I have a question for you. As you're talking, thank you for that beautiful explanation. Is there a way to increase our threshold for perceived stress? 
Yeah. Bef- you know, even, um, you know, for example, let's take my kids. My daughter might go to school. Someone might bully her and she wouldn't perceive it as a, a threat. Mm-hmm. My son, potentially, it could change the trajectory of his life. Yeah. How can we, as parents or just as adults, how do we increase ours, our children's? Is there a way to increase our perceived threat threshold? Yeah. Or are we born with it? Right. Well, I think I think there's there's a lot to answer in that, and there's a lot to unpack there. But of course, there are genetic predispositions, right? We have genetic predispositions to fear and anxiety, um, and we, there are studies out there that actually show. Um, it's a fascinating study. Oh boy, I, I wasn't ready to talk about it, so I don't want to misquote it. And I believe it was the University of New Mexico. Um, your your listeners can look it up, and I'll try and find it we'll, later for you. Yeah, we'll we'll link it. But anyway, long story short. Um, pregnant rats who were exposed to an aversive stimuli then gave birth. Their offspring were afraid of that aversive stimuli, even though they were never exposed to it. I mean, you know, so what that shows is that, that fear is transferred through the genome somehow, which again, makes sense because if my ancestors were afraid of poisonous snakes, it's probably good information that I was born with a fear of poisonous snakes, right? So, um, but all of this is about survival. So I, so again, to answer your point, each child is gonna be a little bit different. Each child might be a little bit more risk averse, less risk averse. There's a lot of temperament and genetics and personality involved in that. But in order to facilitate the least amount of projected pathology or problems with that is how do you approach it? How do they approach it at that time period, right? So how traumatic was that experience for them and making sure that it's processed appropriately and then having the resilience to overcome it and learn from that. So let's say you didn't like going outside because the icicle fell Mm. and you just decided that you just didn't like going outside, Mm -hmm. whether it was warm weather or not. And you don't have any conscious memory of this icicle. How how can the listener think about um, evolving what, n- number one, they're not going to know if their reticular activating system right, is sure. activated, right? Well, would they? Would it be a fear response or is it really this subconscious burden that builds up over time? And if so, how can we remove that so that they can be the best version of themselves? Does it have to be therapy? Obviously, it's not the magic pill. It, it What... How do they identify and then take action? And that's, and what you just described is 90% of the patients I see every day. Doc, I'm anxious. I don't know why. I don't want to leave my house. Why? I I don't know. I don't know. I just, it's, I I don't like it. When I, when I walk out my front door, my heart rate goes up and I start to sweat and I feel like I'm going to die and and I have a panic attack. All right. So there are lots of ways to address that. Um, So this is going to take us, you're so good at this. (laughs) So this hey guys, is this, <laughs> I uh, paid him, slipped him a five under the table. So what we need to do in those cases is use a couple of very brilliant techniques that have been developed over time in psychotherapy. And, you know, um, and again, spoiler guys, you know, Sigmund Freud was amazing and Carl Jung was amazing. We've learned so much from that. But psychoanalytic theory is kind of, you know, sitting and just kind of free association, you know, they're sitting on a the couch scholars, and free association. Very scholarly. Yeah. Um, but now we have more empirical ways to approach these things. So 
Let's talk about that. So let's talk about that person that presents with anxiety and they have no idea why. And we just talked about the physiologic adaptations that are taking place, right? Their autonomic nervous system, their reticular activating system, um, potential polyvagal sort of circumstances that are lending itself to either a fight or flight or an immobilization type fear response. So that's all physical. They don't even know that's happening, but I'm anxious. I'm depressed. I don't know what's going on. Well, Aaron Beck developed an amazing... um, empirically verified way to deal with our thoughts, feelings, and emotions. And it's somewhat basic, actually. It's called cognitive behavioral work, right? And you probably know about this. So basically, someone comes to you and they're saying, I'm depressed or I'm anxious or I'm having a hard time. There are, and trust me, there are many ways to approach this. This is one arm of, of the treatment paradigm. It's trying to understand what the thought behind the emotion is. And usually, not all the time, But usually we can identify the thought behind the fear and the emotion. Now, most people tend to carry with them um, these core beliefs. Aaron, uh, Dr. Beck used to call them uh, core beliefs. And these core beliefs might be the world is dangerous. Um, I'm a terrible father. Um, I'm ugly. No one loves me core beliefs that we've developed over time. How many does each individual have? Oh, well, it depends. I mean, dozens to hundreds, right? So that's not a set number. No, no. But you can you can usually find the core beliefs that are associated with the presentation that they're having, like being depressed or being anxious. So what we try to do in that case is, is this. What we're trying to do is... What we're trying to do is sort of overcome the evolutionary process of preparing you for fight or flight or withdrawing into a space where you're depressed. And we're going to make you think about things that you probably haven't thought about in a long time. And that is, what is that core belief? And if we can figure out that core belief, let's challenge it. Let's re-challenge it. Let's reteach your brain because right now you've learned that the world is a dangerous place, for example. So let's re-challenge that core belief, okay? Now, this is the way I look at it. Um, we have, um, whether we like it or not, we have an internal prosecutor and we have an internal defense attorney. Our minds just have these things. So I'm gonna make something up. Um, I'm depressed because deep down inside through multiple therapy sessions, I've realized that I'm a terrible father. Let's just say that. Okay, well, what is the validation for that? Let's have the prosecutor because all that's been happening, my RAS, my autonomic nervous system has been reinforcing and showing me you're a terrible father. You need to do this. You need to do that. You're a I terrible see. father. So right? you're having a confirmation bias Correct. of the core belief actually potentially could create who you are or- totally simply create the experience of your life. 100%. So now we have to challenge that. And how do we challenge that? Well, we develop a defense attorney. I object, Your Honor. You're not a horrible father. And this is why. But what people have to understand is this takes work. Now, Beck did an amazing thing with cognitive behavioral therapy because not only, you know, we have these core beliefs, these false core beliefs, but we have to address them. And then we also have to say, so people do a very common set of cognitive distortive thinking, 
cognitive distortions. It's like non-reality based thinking, but we do it all the time. Again, evolutionary. Like what? Give me an okay. example. I like um, this. Okay, ready? Distorted um, thinking. Yuck. Yep. Discounting positives. Discounting positives. As human beings, we do this. If I told you right now, 10 amazing things about you, and then told you one negative thing, which one do you think you're going to focus on? Be honest. Well, maybe you're so well adjusted. I don't know. I kind of, I kind of, I would, well, let's the average the here, I'll tell you the truth. You want to know the truth? I would focus on the negative and I would be so grateful. Mm. It wouldn't actually be, I would be so, so mm. grateful. Okay. That's good. I mean, that's amazing. I mean. Let's talk to the average person. I just right? learned something negative about myself the other day. <laughs> it's insight, laughing. right? That's called insight. Um, but, but I was so grateful for the person who told me. Yeah. You, I was that, like, that, that is a perspective. That is so amazing. That's Thank a perspective you. shift that if, if we took that step and most people don't, um, like the constructive criticism sort of, but really, really embrace it, then that's amazing. And you're in a good place if you could do that. Cause most people can't do that. I you know? was in such a good place. I called everyone I knew. Wow. Because it was, it's so valuable. You did do some psych residency training. I did. But I also think that we are here to be the best version of ourselves, and that doesn't happen in an echo chamber. You're on it. Uh, You're so on it. Like, You're so on it. Learn Your patients are lucky to have you and, and lucky to have this forum. You too. hear that, guys? Okay, so cognitive distorted thinking is number one. Um, Let's talk about a couple though. So so discounting positives, we do that. Discounting as a, We do that as a human species. We do that as a human species. We discount positives. Again, I'm going to go back to evolution. But that's a good thing. Discounting positives, well, not really. It's a good thing if that negative is something dangerous that we need to focus on because remember, it's about survival. Our, you, our brain is, is primitive. Really? Does it really? Do you think it is all about survival? Yeah. That's where it all comes from. That's what all stems from. That's how we survival. stay alive every day. Think about it. If if I'm outside and I'm, it's a thousand years ago, whatever, and the sunset is gorgeous and the weather is beautiful and I have this amazing family and I'm providing food for them. These are all these positive things in my life, but I hear a rustling in the woods. What is that? I need to focus on that for safety. Our mind, even though I it's see. 2024, we can hear all these positive things about our lives. But when we hear a negative, we focus and dwell on it. But the difference is we're not in a forest with a saber-toothed tiger ready to pounce, right? We're not. In 2024, well, most of us aren't anyway. Right. So we need to retrain our mind to understand that that negative was maybe an insult. Maybe it was a somebody honking the horn at you. Maybe it was your boss telling you something. Maybe who knows, right? right? Who knows Got what it. it was? But we focus on the negative. So that's one cognitive distortion that we do. Another one is overgeneralization. We tend to overgeneralize things, right? Either put mm -hmm. them in good or bad. We do black and white thinking. We put things in good or bad baskets. When that's just not life, life is very great. So is that common? That's not splitting? Splitting is something that Splitting is something that you're probably referring to like personality disorders yeah. where people will split. That's a little bit of a different coping okay. strategy. Got it. Um, uh, so black and white thinking, overgeneralization, catastrophizing. Again, that sort of falls in the, in the, in sort of that theme of uh, discounting positives. We catastrophize in our minds. Like, okay, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? And then we focus on that, mm. right? But these are all cognitive distortions that we think every single day, we don't even realize them anymore. And we just find that we're nervous or anxious or I depressed. See. So if you're truly doing cognitive behavioral therapy, what that therapist is going to do with you is go through these cognitive distortions. Be the defense attorney. 
Be the defense attorney that every time you have these thoughts or feelings, that defense attorney is going to say, I object and here's why. This is what's good right now, right? So formal cognitive behavioral therapy is like homework. You do it. You have to practice it every day. And I know you're going to relate to this. I relate to this. Most people don't relate to this. Most physicians don't relate to this next point. But if I can drive something home right now, it's this. If I were to tell you that you can lose weight and improve your cardiovascular health and reduce your blood glucose and gain muscle, if you went to the gym and did XYZ every day or three days a week or five days a week, you'd probably do it and you'd see those results. If I told you, let's flip it, you're depressed or you're anxious. And I said, listen to me, we're going to do a program of cognitive behavioral work. We're going to look at those cognitive distortions. We're going to spend 30 minutes a day and we're going to look at your cognitive distortions. We're going to teach you how to have that internal defense attorney. We're going to review them. We're going to validate what's true. And I told you to do that 30 minutes a day. Are people going to do it? Are they going to do it the same way they work out, the same way they train their body? No. And if you don't, guess what happens? It all goes back to baseline. Just like if you don't go to the gym and work out and be physically active and use your mind, it's the same thing. And that's, and that's, hopefully that's the gist of a lot of what we're talking about today is that mental health takes work as well, right? In the sense that we do have to practice these things and we have to be aware of these things. Otherwise we will spiral and our autonomic nervous system and our reticular activating system, it will just put us in survival mode and look at the world in a very different way, right? So we do have to approach mental health the same way that we approach physical health, as I explained in that gym metaphor, right? Yeah. Um, so that's that's kind of cognitive behavioral work. I, I think I answered your question. You did. I, I think I kind of came around full circle. You did. Uh, beautifully. Thank you. I'd like to thank one of the sponsors of the show, and that is First Form. They have a great product called Opti Greens 50. And I'll tell you this, if you are like me, it's very difficult to get in a whole bunch of vegetables, fruits a little bit easier. And that's one reason why I love Opti Greens 50. Opti Greens 50 has a whole host of organic grasses and greens that are really important for the phytonutrient profiles in your foods. And of course, many of us are not going to drink two ounce shots of wheatgrass. You probably have to hold your nose, but OptiGreens 50 does that for you. Each serving provides over 5 billion CFUs. Those are colony forming units from 10 different strains of good bacteria. And this combination can help support digestion, overall gut health, which is really having a moment right now. So if you struggle with getting your fruits and vegetables in, head on over to firstform.com slash Dr. Lion. That's firstform.com slash Dr. Lion. Uh, one of the, the questions I asked is um, this survival that we're always thinking about and chasing after survival, I would say in medicine particularly, and maybe in every specialty or in every domain of whatever it is, we create paradigms of thinking mm -hmm. and then we believe them to be true. It's a theory. And then we have a working theory. And I always wonder where, so you answer the question, you, you believe that we are here functioning 
to maintain survival. And there's the, and I think, okay, so what's the flip side of survival? That would be comfort and safety. Mm. Would, would you agree mm. potentially? Where does that fit in? I was, you know, as we were talking prior to this episode, I started reading about the polyvagus theory. Mm. And he talks a lot about, the theory talks a lot about this drive for comfort and safety. And then I started thinking, everybody's experience of comfort and safety is totally different. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for example, some of the military operators mm -hmm. that I take care of, their idea of comfort and safety is totally different. And mm -hmm. then I started thinking about the relationships. So there's comfort and safety, and then this layering on of relationships. The operators, um, we are a military family, uh, so obviously I spend and have spent a lot of time with um, mil other military families. The, for example, the SEALs, they have a, a mm -hmm. brotherhood. Mm -hmm. And I, I always wonder, is it a brotherhood because of what they experience together, what it takes to get there? And then I started thinking, or is it because that's where they find comfort and safety that however it is that they're processing their experience or how they've been trained that they're, this is a group of people that experiences comfort and safety as a, a collective unit mm -hmm. and that other people may experience comfort and safety in a, a different way and that potentially we gravitate towards these experiences. So good. So good. And and I want to, I got to expand on this, right? Great. Um, you let me know if I get too tangential or circumstantial and just kind of bumper bowl me back because there's a lot to unpack there. This is going to bring us to a very important study that I want to touch upon. And, um, and you know, something I, I want to say something to here today while I'm here today is, you know, I'm not an innovator. I'm not a pioneer in any of this stuff. I'm, I feel like I'm very well read. I feel like, you know, as a, as an associate program director, I keep up on things. And so I'm unbelievably thankful to the researchers out there that are doing this work. I'm so busy right now. I can't do my own research, unfortunately. <laughs> but I, I do need to say that. I need to say that, you know, I'm quoting a lot of things. Um, these aren't my independent thoughts. This is, you know, Stephen Porges with polyvagal um, um, theory. This is, um, you know, Robert Waldinger from the Harvard study. This this is uh, Aaron Beck, cognitive behavioral therapy, right? So um, I give them an enormous amount of credit for the ability for me to verbalize what I'm saying today. And I'm certainly not taking credit for any of it. Um, maybe, maybe I'll take credit for making it all make sense. I don't know, maybe that, but- We all appreciate that. <laughs> so, all right. So what you just said to me is so profound. And, and that's why I wanna talk about the, the Harvard study. Um, I want to, okay. So everyone needs to know about this because they should read about it. Um, Harvard did an amazing thing. They have been following people for up to 80 years. It's over 80 years at this point. And over the course of 80 years, this started a long time ago, do the math, you know, minus 80 some years, where they started following children in Boston. They started following Harvard students. It started uh, with a very biased sample actually. And that's one of the limitations. It was like white males in Boston. And, um, but now it has expanded tremendously and, and is much more, um, socioeconomically and, and uh, sociologically diverse. So, so that being said, over 80 years, okay, following people. And while they are following these people, they are doing questionnaires. Mm -hmm. 
and they're looking at their medical records and they're looking at their neuro records and they're looking at their family dynamic. Are they divorced? Are they married? Are they happily married? They're, they're doing um, cognitive assessments. They're doing behavioral health assessments, depression questionnaires, anxiety questionnaires. My point is they've followed individuals for over 80 years. It's tremendous. And I think at this point, there's over 2000 individuals in the study, right? There's tremendous. nothing, nothing has ever been done like this. So uh, one of the lead authors at this point, and obviously over the course of 80 years, it's been handed down over decades. Right. And Robert Waldinger um, is there now um, with an associate. Um, he actually just wrote a book on this, but what they really wanted to look at was across all of these years and all of these people, what truly makes people happy, right? I love it. Right. So uh, you probably know the answer, um, but I need, to I, say, I need to say it. Um, it had very little to do with monetary. It had very little to do uh, with prestige and position in life. But it did heavily, heavily, and there's a lot of nuance mm -hmm. in the study, but the most heavily weighted reason for well-being and happiness, including mortality, lifespan, was the closeness and satisfaction of your interpersonal relationships in your life. That's it. I mean, that foundation is so profound, right? So we, we were kind of joking around before the pod and I said, imagine... You know, we say, hey, quitting smoking, you'll live longer. Or, hey, you know, watching or exercising, you know, 30 minutes a day, you'll probably live longer, right? What if we said, foster your relationships, develop meaning and trust, mm -hmm. and you'll probably live longer, <laughs> right? I love Wouldn't that, that be on though. the headlines? Wouldn't that just be on the headlines of every medical journal and every like, you know? But it is, these are reproducible studies. I mean, you know, um, in his research or, or in their research, I mean, this is something that's so important. Now, what does this tell us? It tells us that we're social creatures. And I'm coming full circle to your question about the SEALs and the SEAL teams and, and coping with stress. We're social creatures. Okay, so Robert Waldinger and his colleagues and, and all the decades that preceded him have led us to this answer that meaningful, engaging relationships make us happy. Now, let's back up a little bit to our earlier conversation That's on the autonomic nervous okay. system. Right? Okay. Okay. Ready? So what if we've experienced trauma, we've experienced challenge, we've started to perceive the world in a negative way through our autonomic nervous system, through our reticular activating system, through these cognitive distortions that we've developed over time, how do you think that's going to affect our relationships? Negatively, why? Because we're on guard, because we're protected, because we're scared. So we won't open up to people and then we won't have relationships. And when you are in that fight or flight state, you somehow think that you need to do this on your own. You're isolated. No one can help you. And then what happens to the level of your relationships? And hence, as per this study, this Harvard study, what happens if you have poor relationships? You're not going to live as long. You're not going to be happy. Mm. So, wow. So now we have to say. <laughs> so, wow. So yeah. it's not just like, hey, fix your relationships and all will be good. It's. But if you don't, you don't have a chance. You need, you need them in your life. But 
But we also have to go back again and figure out why can't you have good relationships? What's happening in your life? What traumas? What experiences? What is your subconscious making you do that you don't trust people or engage in people? And, you know, going back to polyvagal theory is, is do you know that this is, and this, and here's some neuroscience for you. If you have perceived stressors and, and challenges in your life and traumatic experiences, and you're operating on a fight or flight circumstance, do you know if I showed you a certain amount of neutral faces, you, I'm just using you as an example, compared to someone that has not experienced stressors and is experiencing a pretty comfortable life, you will perceive the neutral faces as more threatening than the person that did not experience those stressors, right? So how does that gonna affect our relationships? We're gonna look at people as dangerous, right? We're gonna look at our environment as dangerous. We're gonna look at our social constructs as untrustworthy, yeah. right? So here we go, here's your Navy SEAL question. Well, first of all, I mean, the selection bias in that is just insane because these individuals finally making it to an operator is like selected, 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 <laughs> selected, 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 right? Yeah. Um, so now you have this, this group of individuals who are experiencing very, very high level stress. And when people do experience that high level of stress, they know that the only people that understand them and that they can relate to are their co-operators, are, the, are the people that are involved in the same things that they do on a daily basis. And if they didn't have that, they'd probably in big trouble psychologically. Mm. And, you know, they know that. And, you know, and again, I mean, talking about PTSD, I used to work in the VA PTSD clinic and um, I have a lot of experience with that as well. And why do you think that, you know, people with post-traumatic stress disorder present with dissociation? Mm. Dissociation. You're not present. You're just emotionally not present. Why do you have a flat affect? Why is your face flat? Why do they speak in monotone? It's that it's that autonomic nervous system mm. that put them in that position, right? It's it's really fascinating. Can we cultivate comfort and safety to allow us to operate differently? Can we I don't know, reposition what we think. I mean, because comfort and safety is different for mm -hmm. different people, right? Some people are more introverted or some people experience comfort and safety differently. But, you know, I just thinking about what you, you said and what we're talking about is that the body or the human is always looking for ways to survive. Yeah. And then they're looking to survive and on the same hand or the opposite side of the coin, they're looking for comfort and safety because they're mm -hmm. two different things, right? The idea of survival is more fight or flight, which I always wonder if there's probably more evolved uh, stress responses that we have. And then comfort and safety, can one do both? And can we change what we experience or can we teach our children to find comfort and safety in like appropriate things yeah. versus a friend group that might be bad for them or you just, you know, you pick. Yeah. Again, amazing questions. I, I think, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to miss something here too. And, and I apologize if this seems more complicated at this point with what I'm about to say, but evolutionarily, we also realize that we do better in groups, right? So they call it the tend and befriend you know, parasympathetic nervous system. So um, 
we do know that and and that's why our ancestors used to you know just work better in groups it takes a village that whole mm. cliche right it takes a village so true. so we do know that too um and that's also a very very good coping strategy um but what you know you're talking we're talking about comfort now there's, there's a very big difference in this appropriate level of comfort where you're still functioning on a day-to-day -day basis and getting through your life and right and, and progressing and overcoming challenges and having resilience that's very different than what we call avoidant behavior now avoidant behavior is very dangerous because avoidance breeds more avoidance mm. right so why do you it, say that well because again going back to comfort it's you know we know in child psychiatry we learned real quick that when kids are anxious and they don't go to school if they don't go to school for one or two or three days, we get them back to school. Literally statistics show that if they stay home for over 30 days, you are not getting them back to school. Avoidance of- Wow, that, yeah. just, we have to pause for a second <laughs> yeah. because our adults, little children, is that, uh, wait, our adults, big children. Yes. Okay, so we could potentially say what you learn towards children would then correlate to adults of course okay. it's us it's still us okay as a matter um, of fact i'm gonna i'm gonna rewind a little bit and say that do you remember when we talked about um the prosecutor and defense attorney yeah. that we have in our brain with a cognitive behavioral approach well you know gibor mate who's an amazing physician mm -hmm. um and again I, I can't take credit for any of this stuff because these are their thoughts um but he would say that that prosecutor is your childhood voice that prosecutor that's telling you you're unlovable, you're a terrible person, you're a bad mom, that's a voice that you probably developed at a very young age, mm. right? So yeah, we're just big kids and we're still listening to that voice. <laughs> well, you know, um, the reason I ask is because think about all the people at home that are like, oh, I'm so anxious or, um, you know, people that are running companies and then they isolate themselves. Mm -hmm because they feel like they just need to be by themselves and that would compound the problem and there's no way of getting them better then. Right, yeah, isolation is not good for humans. Mm. We know that um, for sure, neuroscientifically and psychologically and sociologically, but um, I was gonna say something, it just, it just slipped me, there's so much to talk about. Oh, talking about isolation. Oh, where was I gonna go? Well, I, 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 well while you're going. thinking yeah. about that, I um, always wonder, nature versus nurture. Mm -hmm. You are uh, trained as a child psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. it, these behaviors, I know what you're gonna say, you're gonna say mm -hmm. it's multifactorial, yeah. but what is stronger? Because you, your older sibling, we'll just take you for example, did they get rejection after rejection on something? Well, I kind of come from a different circumstance because um, my two older siblings are, are half siblings, so. Um, it's so half genetic, you know. So, so just as an example, yeah, right? Yeah, because yeah. again, uh, there's a lot of parents out there. I have two little kids. One would say, you know, I got my child's, uh, we have parent teacher conference, even though my kid's not even five, but whatever. Hmm. I got her report and I can't say I wasn't shocked by it. They said that she was, you know, likes to be first and, you know, is, kind of X, Y, and Z. And I can see where she would get that. But I wonder, and then my son is is totally different. They both are in the same environment. Yeah. 
which yeah. <laughs> which is more important? What is true? Yeah. Wow. So yeah. So we're talking about epigenetics. We're talking about um, genetic loading of personality and temperament. Um, we're talking about experience. So, it- and I realize, and I think that the listener realizes that these are super complex topics, but our children are the future. And um, while I have you here, someone who is trained in children, the psyche of children, mm-hmm. there's no one better to ask. Well, I, I will say this, and this is probably, I don't know, I guess the best way that I can answer your question is that a lot of people, especially after uh, the, the Harvard study came out, said, well, you know, I'm just not a social person. Am I just doomed to be miserable? Or I'm an introvert, like, holy cow, like, you know. Um, or I have some innate fears, like, am I just doomed, you know, to be anxious the rest of my life? Well, I'm here to tell you, undoubtedly, that despite the epigenetic or genetic load, people change for the better all the time, every day. And you can overcome that. Now, in some people, it's harder than others, of course, right? Depending on that load, um, the genetic load. And, uh, but everyone is malleable for the same reasons that we talked about is that we're adaptable individuals, right? And we, I I think, so yeah, so, so people can change, people can, no matter what their genetic load or experience in life, which again, it's biopsychosocial, remember, the person that I'm talking to right now sitting across from this table has an enormous amount of genetic, temperamental predisposition, Mm. but you also have all the experiences that you've experienced in your life that have shaped you, right? So, uh, here's you ready for another Dr. Dom analogy? We'll take it. Is yes, sir. the way that I look at how we were shaped. Do you know what sea glass is? Sea of glass. Of course. Right. So, yeah, yeah. So picture picture a sharp object that's just tossed around in the ocean for 100 years and now it's this shaped mm-hmm. soft stone. It's kind of like us, right? Is can you can you figure out that one input that made that shape? Mm. No, of course not. There were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of inputs over the course of hundreds of years that made that stone the shape that it is. And we're sort of that way as as humans. Now, of course, we come, you know, what the rock is made of will affect how it is shaped or how easily it is shaped or how, you know, is it a soft rock? Is it a hard rock? Is it, right. Um, and then, you know, was there a sandblaster that was shaping it or was it just rolling in the surf, you know, for a hundred years? So, so my analogy is that's a lot like people and we're shaped by just so much, but we can change the shape and good psychotherapy and good intervention is kind of like a sandblaster, mm. right. To sort of change that shape and sort of reshape things for the better i you know when you you say reshape things for the better it makes me think about this distorted thinking and that we kind of discount positives Mm -hmm. is it always and we talk a lot about trauma just everybody talks a lot about trauma that seems to really influence an individual's behavior and their projection in life could there be something equally as positive that would also do that or are our brains just wired to this negativity bias? You're, we are definitely more wired to the negativity bias. Um, but, okay. So, yes, yes. Positive circumstances affect us tremendously if we pay attention to them. That's That's the most important point. Do we pay attention to them? Do we... 
All right, look, I go to the hospital every day. I see death and dying every single day. I hate that. I hate working at the hospital. I see death and dying every day. I see disease. I see horrible circumstances. I see 15-year-olds that have chronic illness and terminal illness. I see people. I, I see horrible stuff. So every day, so my life is sort of changed based on that because I am able to come home and say, oh my God, I'm standing upright. I'm healthy, right? Um, not at the moment. Do I have any significant problems? So, but most people. Not, that, that was a very <laughs> psychiatry thing to say. Did you guys hear that? He said, not at the moment. There are seasons in life, friends. Oh, you That was hilarious. It. And I caught it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Life is a sine wave and it's important role with that. And that's called resiliency. And that's a whole other discussion, um, psychological resiliency. Um, and also you're not getting off the hook because we have to talk about how do we regulate the autonomic nervous system? So we talked yep. about this particular activating system. We talked about the autonomic nervous system. And unfortunately, it seems as humans, if we are primed for disaster. <laughs> Let it happen. We're primed for it. There has to be, and maybe there isn't, maybe some people like my husband are primed for disaster and, and his response will be here versus my response would be through the roof. There has to be strategies. Yeah, there are. There are. Um, and I, I, I don't want this to sound all overly pessimistic. You know, life is an amazing thing. We just have to pay attention to it. Um, I think we get caught up based on our survival mechanisms to be a little bit more on the pessimistic side. Again, important um, and survivability. But these days, I mean, we're fairly safe. So hopefully we don't have is, isn't there was a book called, what is it? Um, um, Steve, I don't know. I'll look it up. Anyway, but we live in the safest yeah. time ever. But right? we don't perceive it that way, right? We don't perceive it that way. And what's, listen, I mean, okay. So you wake up in the morning and there's the average person, right? You open your eyes, you reach over and you grab your cell phone and you start scrolling you see the news. Oh, there's a war here. There's a war there. This was just bombed. Oh, geez. Great. Another COVID strain coming around. Um, oh, there's my, there's my email. I have this work to do. I have that work to do. So can you see how we're just setting ourselves up for failure? Right. And we do that day in and day out and day in and day out. Um, so yes, yeah, so we're, I want to talk about these ways to sort of overcome this tidal wave of survival. Um, by the way, he said, most people, some of us are waking up with a foot in our face. <laughs> so I remember those days too. Don't worry. I have three boys at home. Um, <laughs> yeah. How do we, how do we regulate this disaster zone of a nervous system? And I have to say, I, I question the fight or flight that we all talk about. I, I question the idea if we've just been taught incorrectly about these stress responses. So we taught about the nervous system, the reticular activating system. We know that we have hard physiological responses to these things. You chose psychiatry, it is incredibly complex. So it's very difficult to say, Matthew has an experience and because of his experience or um, encoding of X, Y, and Z, he releases this amount of cortisol, this amount of oxytocin, et cetera. I often wonder about more evolved stress responses mm -hmm. and you know whether it's tendon befriend, whether it's this courage response and and I guess can we cultivate that and will that affect our ability to regulate the autonomic nervous system, this reticular activating? Should we 
red light, while we're doing brain neuro, I don't know, transmagnetic stimulation, what do we do? With practice, yes, we're good. And again, I mean, listen, I was a fitness trainer. You're heavily into fitness. Um, you know, your practice is very geared towards, um, you know, like protein intake and all these amazing things to, to help the body from a physical perspective and mental perspective. But I w- I'm going to say the same thing. Like if I came to you and I was like, listen, I, I, I'm overweight, I'm unhealthy, I'm eating horribly. Is there hope? Is there hope? And you're going to say, yeah, we know but you got to work at it, but okay. you have to work at it. Right. And, and. I'm going to tell you the same thing psychiatrically, right? So I'm taking CBT off the table. I need to know, are we cold plunging? Are we, what do we do to get out of, if someone is listening in there in a fear anxiety loop, are there physiological things? I mean, because psychiatry is very heavily based medication and then the mental aspect, the cognitive aspect. You guys also have other tools like transmagnetic stimulation. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they still do uh, ECT, ECT yeah. for um, refractory depression. What have you found, especially uh, in the literature? Are there Should we be measuring heart rate variability? Should individuals be doing cold exposure? Should, I mean, what can someone at home listening, what can they do? Yeah. 500 push-ups, so, guys. Yeah. So, okay. Let's let's go super, super, super basic. Ready? Yes. Ready. Autonomic nervous system. Autonomic nervous system is running your body unconsciously because we can't think about, I better beat my heart all night. Otherwise, I'm going to be in big trouble, right? Um, I better regulate my digestive system to process the food. I can't think about that stuff. So, our body is doing it autonomically, automatically. What is one autonomic directly linked to the vagal nerve that we can change. Breathing. Everyone's like, oh my God, I do not want to hear about breathing. But you're right. So what am I, listen, and that's where it's the eye true. rolls come in. No, and, no, it's And you true. ready for this? 10 years ago, I would have eye rolled at you. I would have eye rolled. I'd be like, if somebody tells me to take deep breaths again, when I'm nervous, I'm going to freak out because this is so woo-woo Eastern but philosophy it's not. crap. Listen, I, you know, the meditative practices, the deep breathing, the mindfulness, thousands and thousands of years ago, they may have not known the neurophysiology behind it, but man, they were right. Do we know, just out of curiosity, do we know how that developed or why? Have you ever read? I mean, I don't know. I mean, whoever came uh, yeah, up with that's that. A, that's an incredible question. I think they started to realize, I mean, look, you just go to Buddhist philosophy and like one of the first tenets is, you know, like suffering is inevitable. I mean, how brilliant is that? Like just accept suffering and know that that's part of life and, and, and to not be so distraught when you experience um, challenges and overcome them and be resilient by knowing that that's a part of life. Right. And they knew this thousands of years ago. But is that, isn't that wild? Wild or, or deep breathing, yoga, meditation, like a, these Eastern philosophies were right. Like I said, they did not have EEGs and MRIs and, and you know, all the stuff that we have now, but they were on it. And that's why I don't want anybody to eye roll. I'm telling you, I read the literature for a living. I practice this for a living. And you can slow down your sympathetic nervous system by deep breathing practices, by mindfulness, by meditative practices. You can absolutely do it. And that's the most primitive and basic start to all of this. You know, you said, take CBT off the table, take therapy off the table, take, you know, all that stuff off the table. Let's just start with that, right? Um, physical exercise. Uh, wait, unbelievably. You, I, I want to hear about the breathing. Is there a technique that you have found really helpful? One, 
maybe one. I noticed before you sat down, you took a deep breath. Yeah. When um, before we began the interview, are there certain? Is there a certain cadence that you use? I wonder. I wonder if they. You know, I wonder if your husband knows these from his his seal training. He does. He totally does. No, because this is all, listen, all I've ever heard is winter howling, four by four breathing. We know. Four by four breathing, right. yeah. But listen, the military is a very efficient thing in that regard that they're not going to teach you something unless they really think it's going to probably work or benefit you. So when they have soldiers on the front lines that are getting shot at and they need to rest and sleep, they teach them a few things. One is box breathing, right? Which is the four by four breathing as as your husband could probably explain pretty well, which is, you know, inhaling for a certain amount of time, four seconds, holding for two to four, and then slowly exhaling. That is going to activate your, your vagal nerve, which is parasympathetic. It's just, you know, it's going to slow your heart rate down. It's going to reduce your blood pressure. Um, so all of those things, absolutely 100% from a basic standpoint um, are going to help. So. I mean, that's the only one that I really know. And then um, there's the physical exercise. I mean, listen, we know cardiovascular exercise and, and, you know, we know that that's going to also reduce sympathetic tone as well. You know, when you say sympathetic tone, does that mean you're looking at heart rate variability Mm -hmm. or is that the anxiousness someone is feeling? Is that their blood pressure? Exactly. Heart rate variability, um, blood pressure increase, all of it, all that sympathetic tone, that sympathetic drive, it's going to reduce the cortisol. Um, and, I, again, I got to be careful because I don't want to get too tangential because my mind, these things just pop up. But but going back to the CBT type stuff is, and again, ready for the eye rolls? I'm telling you, the eye rolls. And it was me. I would have eye rolled. I promise your listeners. I would have eye rolled. <laughs> no, no, years. they're not eye rolling. They're, I'm, I'm... Gratitude journals. Gratitude journals. You know, it's 2024. I look at MRIs and CTs every day. I look at labs every day. I'm a medical doctor. I'm telling you that writing in a gratitude journal, waking up in the morning before grabbing your damn cell phone, think about five things that you're grateful for and just say them to yourself. That simple. It's you guys, profound. we're going to do this. So, you know, we have a community. profound. I would love to have you on as a guest. Um, we have um, a Forever Strong community we just mm. launched. Uh, before I did the book launch, we, um, we had 7,000 members in this community which is amazing. And we just launched it. And uh, I'd love to have you on as a guest. You call me. I got you. You guys, I haven't really talked about this. And my assistant and my team are probably going to kill me right now. Matthew over there, you're texting. I see you. You texting Alexia. We have this community. It's this forever strong community. We've created an app for it. I think Matthew would know. But um, I would love to have you on. You talk about this. You say the them. word. You say the word, and I'm there. We do that. That would be amazing. You say the word, so you guys. I'm, I'm going to put a link in the show notes. Allegedly, uh, the team is going to put a, a link in the show notes. It would be so fun to have you on because these things that you're talking about. So we have the physiological, the breathing, the exercise, and then this idea. All of this builds resilience. And I do have some questions on. And I hopefully you're you're still good on time. I'm good because. The, you know, I I guess, you know, one of the things that I always think about are these supplements and these Mm -hmm. THC and CBD. And oftentimes I think people think some of the, these, that they're benign. Mm -hmm. And also you talked about medication in the beginning of this. I am not anti-medication at all. 
doctors do not get paid for medication for prescribing. At least I don't know of any. And there's this thought process that my doctor wants to give me a medication, SSRI, hmm. et cetera, because they're getting paid by big pharma. That is not how that works. Um, and so, you guys, I do want you to hear that. That yeah, if if I can attest to that, I think I think psychiatry probably does take a big hit on that as well. Um, you know, I've heard that over and over and over that were shills for pharmaceutical companies and stuff. And look, I, I you know I can be as honest as I can be. Maybe you guys believe me, maybe you don't. But um, I have never been <laughs> paid or encouraged to prescribe a medicine if I didn't think it was if I didn't think it was necessary. I mean, yeah, you know, maybe the research is biased and things like that, but. Um, you know, I teach a course right now in my residency program called Appraisal of the Scientific Literature. And what I'm doing in that course, I think any residency or academic medical program has this. And this is what the what, what people out there that are maybe non-medical need would should know, is that we teach our medical students and our residents to unbiasedly or as unbiased as they possibly can be, because there's always bias, is appraise literature before you make a clinical decision. Right. And trust me when I tell you that when I do a literature review, and say, say when my, one of my residents brings in a journal and they're talking about this new drug, the first thing I'm going to say is who sponsored the journal? Was there any financial interest in it? Did Big Pharma sponsor it? Because maybe they did. Yeah. And then we have to look at it critically. Totally. So, so yeah, I mean, we do look at those things. At least if you're a good physician, you are looking at those things. And it's very important. I, I agree with you. And I, I did just want to mention it because- the you know when you sat down, you said that psychiatry has a really big stigma. Mm. It is absolutely true. People, no offense, no offense to the psychiatrists, you guys. I did psychiatry for two years. They feel embarrassed. They don't want to say I went to psychiatrists. They don't want to say I'm on medication as if it is a personal failure, and it's absolutely not. Yeah. And um. This kind of seg segues into the, my question about are there safe so safety any medication that eventually comes out from a cognitive standpoint is pretty highly regulated and been been around for has to go through phase one two three trials. There's been a huge upswing in marijuana, THC, CBD, and I'm just curious from a psychiatric perspective, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so so it's a it's a slippery slope. Yeah, and I'll tell you why. So so one thing that I also do is is um, I'm involved in addiction medicine. Part of part of my consultation liaison psychiatry is doing detox. Um, we also opened a rehab center, New Jersey Recovery Institute. But we psychiatrically, psychologically, we have to be very careful on are we solving the problem or are we reinforcing the problem. Are we avoiding the problem by taking the substance? All right. So I think, you know, it's important to ask yourselves those questions, right? Now, I, I'm not going to vilify one medicine or one drug and all that. And I detox people off it. Trust me, alcohol, benzodiazepines, opiates. I detox people off these medicines. Um, some people have problems with THC. Right. And, and for the listener, a clinical liaison means. It means that Dr. Dom is very smart, a very smart psychiatrist, and he has to be able to understand the medicine because he'll be consulted, consult liaison, will be consulted in the hospital, will be consulted uh, for an acute individual coming in. Is this delusions or delirium or 
withdrawal, et cetera. Yeah, thanks for explaining that. It's it's the bridge between medicine, neurology, and psychiatry, right? Here we go. Yeah. So okay. Now, as a psychiatrist, if somebody's having panic attacks, let's just use an example of benzodiazepines. Mm-hmm. If I give someone who has panic attacks and generalized anxiety a benzodiazepine, Xanax, Ativan, Clonopin, all the famous ones, am I doing them a disservice? Maybe. And the reason for that is this. It, those medicines are wonderful and they work. They calm you right down. They calm you right down. Trust me, come to the ER sometime when somebody's having an acute psychotic episode or a, or a panic episode. Um, they're a godsend. However, just like in life, if I constantly take away your discomfort, what's going to happen with it resolve? You're going to need more because you've never learned how to deal with that discomfort. You've never learned how to deal with the discomfort and say, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to get through it. So while certain medicines have been shown over time to really not be habit forming and you know that sort of thing, we do have to be careful of medicines or substances that we take that just mask the problem and don't allow us to face and become resilient and overcome, right? And that's why medicines like benzodiazepines can be a problem. Okay, so now you mentioned THC. So THC, you know, it's- This is it, a lot of patients, yeah. um, and I don't know what to tell them. I'm certainly not an expert in THC or cannabis, and I always wonder, will this affect their mood? It seems like they're becoming reliant on it mm-hmm. in a way that potentially, I don't know if it's regulated, unregulated, mm-hmm. What are the long-term effects and is this making anything better? Yeah. So THC is an interesting one. Um, it's, it's wow, can of worms of THC because um, you know, legal for a long time, a uh, whole political mess with that. Um, then it was medically um, prescribed for quite a while for only various mm-hmm. things. Um, and now it's being recreationally used, right? So, okay. So THC, um, people swear by it. Um, they say it helps them relax. They say it helps them sleep, right? Now, here's the truth. If if a patient comes to me and says they're using THC every single day, um, I'm going to do a real unique analysis on what's going on in their life. Is there any avoidance behavior going on? Is it preventing them from facing certain issues that they need to overcome? You know, so it's it's a very kind of case to case basis, right? Um, would I rather and I'm fine. You can quote me on saying this. Would I rather if 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 the person doesn't have an addictive personality, if they're not avoiding anything, if they're getting by in life perfectly well, and they say a little THC helps me sleep at night, would I rather say take the THC than take Ambien? I'd say yes, <laughs> because I know yeah. benzodiazepines and, and sleep aids can be real troublesome. Can be really difficult to get on. Really difficult to get off. Really so, difficult. so yeah, but I think it's a real it's a case by case basis. Mm. Now look, I have people that use THC. And they completely numb themselves out and dissociate and not facing anything in their lives. And that's a problem. That's a problem. That's very different than the person that says, hey, you know, I have chronic pain and THC seems to get me through my day. Or the person that says, hey, I can't fall asleep at night. This just helps me wind down and relax. Very different. So you're, um, so basically, and that makes a lot of sense that if it is there to numb the pain, et cetera, are you worried about, so a lot of psychiatric drugs have metabolic side effects Mm. that we see, um, whether it's. Paxil or Zyprexa seem to affect glucose metabolism, fatty acid metabolism. Yeah. Do you have um, concerns about THC doing those kinds of things? So obviously we do know it's an appetite stimulant, right? Um, and 
you know, I think one of the biggest problems that I see with THC um, is is the weight gain for sure. But the other thing I see is that after a while, it creates almost like this apathetic, amotivational presentation. And that can be troubling when you're really trying to get people to progress in their lives, to maybe go to the gym, to get out and do things and be social and, um, you know, maybe, you know, take on new, new um, challenges in life, right? There's something about THC that we've known for a very long time. It causes some amotivation, amotivational um, circumstances in people. So we do wonder about that and we have to be really cautious about that. And that's why I think overuse, we just have to be careful. And you're right. Listen, man, our, our, our psychiatric medicines for mood stabilization and antipsychotics are the side effects are just tremendous. It's Metabolic. difficult. What are you going to do? Are you going to have someone who is really having a difficult time functioning um, or have them gain weight? And then people could say, well, you're going to do a ketogenic diet and do all of these things. And yes, and I mean, these are acute challenges. Well, that's why we're coming full circle again, that if someone has bipolar disorder and they're on an antipsychotic or a mood stabilizer, that potentially has a weight gain as a, as a side effect. If you're not addressing their lifestyle and their diet and their activity levels, then you are failing that patient. You're failing the patient, right? So, so we have to address all of them. Where do you think the future of psychiatry is going? Genetic testing to see the medications. Where where are we going? Yeah, I mean, we so we already have some of that. We have genetic testing, and and a is that a standard one that you use? Yeah. So right now, so here, this is important. I think people get the get a, or they're misunderstanding these genetic tests for psychotropic medication. What the genetic tests do is look at your cytochrome system. So the cytochrome system is how we metabolize whatever we put in our mouth, right? With that, and it's crazy complex. And there, there are various cytochromes for various medicines. Like for example, one medicine might be metabolized by cytochrome <laughs> 2D, 2D6, right? 2D6 or um, you know, something like that. So, so what we're looking at is basically genetically, what does your cytochrome system look like? So if I give you medicine A that is metabolized by cytochrome 2, that genetically you have a really slow cytochrome 2, then you probably have side effects of those medicines because you're not metabolizing them appropriately. So all that we're doing is lining up the medicine with the metabolic profile of your genetics. That's all we're doing. We're not, we don't have the capability to know whether medicine's going to be effective, treat your depression, anxiety, psychosis, mood disorder. All that we can do right now is line up your cytochrome metabolic profile with this, with the metabolic profile of how that medicine is broken down. That's all we can do right now. So perhaps in the future, yeah, we might get a little bit better at that. But where's psychiatry going? I Right now, I, I don't think a lot of people realize this, but um, when you do boards in psychiatry, it's the boards of uh, psychiatry and neurology, they're combined. The difference between a neurologist, a board-certified neurologist, and a board-certified psychiatrist is that 70% of my boards are behavioral health and 30% is neurology, where a neurologist is the opposite, 70% uh, neurologic and uh, 30% behavioral. I see, and you know, especially with training and things becoming more medical and learning more neuroscience, I, I have a feeling that psychiatry and neurology are probably going to combine at some point. And that would be super interesting. That's, that's, that's where I think it's going to end up. I mean, this could be decades from now, but I just see it. I see it kind of gravitate because obviously the more we learn about neuroscience, the more hard data that we have, 
in behavioral health and it's just becoming they're just become by default they're just becoming more and more linked mm. well dr don thank you so much for coming on the show if there is anything else that you want to talk about the floor is wide open to you but it's just you are a wealth of information and i'm super grateful thank you it's, it's amazing to be here and honestly just to have this platform to you know get some of this info out there that's i can't be more grateful for that um one thing i just want to end on is based on so much that we talked about today you know we, we talked about the physiology of how we respond to our environment and how our autonomic nervous system can bias the way we think and perceive the world and um, how we can hack that perhaps with cognitive behavioral work and meditative work and um, insight work into our thoughts, right? Um, and then talking about the happiness study at Harvard. I think it's very, very important for people to take home something is that there's a very big difference in life between hedonic way of living um and a way of living that's called eudaimonic living and the difference is this is that hedonic living means that we think there's a finish line that's going to make us happy we think if i get to b from a i will be happy science social science psychology psychiatry has proven that wrong over and over and over again. If you live a life thinking, if I just get here, I'll be happy, you're setting yourself up for failure. You have to live a life where you're present and you're enjoying things now. And I know that's not easy. I know that's not easy. But one way of realizing that is debunking that hedonic treadmill if I get that fancy car, if I just get a million dollars in my bank account, if I get that nice house, if I graduate medical school, if I become famous, if I X, Y, or Z, then I'll be happy. You're wrong. And, you know, we talked a little bit about something called affective forecasting, where psychology is kind of proven that we're kind of bad at that. We're bad at predicting what's going to make us happy, at least duration of happiness and intensity of happiness, we know that we can't really predict that too well. We kind of get the basics. But for all the listeners out there, um, going back to all that Eastern stuff, being present, being thankful for what you have now, and looking at your life as a whole, knowing that there will be ups and downs, and not thinking that a finish line is going to make you happy, that's probably the biggest thing you could take away from this. Oh, that's just so beautifully said. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm both.